Welcome to On Fighting in Thailand, the best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people. Today we will be talking to Ruth Ashton as part of our series on the WBC. Um, just a quick note, there are some technical issues with the sound. Um, bear with me. It's a great interview. Uh, I think Ruth gives a lot of great information and is really inspiring. Um, so a little bit of background and news first. If you'd like to reach me, you can always follow me on Instagram, MattLucasBKK, or email me at a.matt.lucas at gmail.com. Thanks to all the people that have supported me so far, sharing the podcast, leaving reviews, etc. If you'd like to leave a review, that would be super helpful. You can do so on the iTunes store. Uh, I also want to personally thank Vinny Scotto, Patrick Rivera, Dave Brooks, Sean Madden, and Wendell Galano, and Chris Tran for helping me with uh, my broke camera. Um, I've been using it a lot. Hopefully, I'll be doing another Behind the Fight soon. Um, also, after years of hard work, studying, and being in the game, I've decided to publish uh, I'm Fighting in Thailand, a guide to the sport in the motherland. Um, it's available now. Um, on Amazon, um, it's composed of a series of interviews with long-term expat fighters, including Michael Savas, Willie Whipple, Lisa Brealey, Angela Chang, and others. Um, this clear guide goes over scoring, matchmaking, picking a gym, fight styles, gambling, Muay Thai culture, and much more. Um, it helps educate and guide careers by helping save fighters from costly mistakes. It's a definitive guide to help clear up questions and really help people understand the game. So I really recommend you go out and pick up a copy. Um, again, you can get it off of Amazon. It's also being carried by Authentic Muay Thai Supplies. Uh, thanks to my sponsors, Nakmoy Legends, for their continued support of the show. They create some great Muay Thai apparel with portions of the proceeds going back to the legends they celebrate. All the superstars have been paid for their images as well. Check out their gear at www.nakmoylegends.com. You can use OnFighting, O-N-F-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, to get 15% off your order. Thanks, as always, to Patrick Rivera for helping get the show started. I recently went out to the U.S. for the Muay Thai Business Summit. Um, it was a great experience. It was held at Patrick's new location in Elk Grove. Uh, it's his third branch of the Valor uh, Academy. Um, it really meant a lot to me to be flown out to Stockton uh, or to Elk Grove to do this talk. I did two presentations, one on publicity and another about the economic history of the sport, looking at fighters' purse sizes. So we went over that, and it was really a great experience. I got to meet a lot of people. There were about 50 gym owners there. Um, I signed books, took photos, and I learned a lot. Pat uh, Patrick did some great um, presentations, Brian Dobler, um, Dan Savage from Combat Corner. I got to meet some really awesome people, including Dave Brooks, um, the people from Authentic Muay Thai, the people from Guild Muay Thai, Easton Training Center, um, 
the list goes on and on. Um, so it was a really great experience and I really appreciate it. So a little bit about our guest today, Ruth Ashton is a diamond belt holder from the WBC. So one of only four diamond belt holders in the world. Um, she's spent 12 years at Crawley Lumpini in the UK. Uh, right now she does a lot of PTs, lessons, kid classes, and also is a certified yoga instructor. Uh, she began Muay Thai. Uh, she was actually working in a museum as a darkroom printer. Photography was her hobby, and someone invited her to a fight. Um, it was an air raid shelter. It was scary loud, but she really was impressed by it and got into the ring. Um, she fought over 90 fights over 12 years, uh, fighting five to ten times a year, so very, very active. Um, she retired just before her 40th birthday um, with a lot of accomplishments under her belt. So without further ado, our interview with Ruth Ashton. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Ruth. I really appreciate it. Um, you said before off air that you started with ringside photography. What made you actually want to step into the ring itself? Oh, I think that was a long way off from when I first started. I um, went along and photographed, and to be honest, it scared me and made me jump a bit when I first went along. Um, I think uh, what made me so passionate about it was realising how close everyone was and what like a little family they were together. And it, it, that did make me passionate about it. And I was like, you know what, I, I need to get fit as well. So these guys are great. I went along and did a few classes fitness-wise, and... Um, was still photographing for the gym for probably about a year um, and I was getting more and more involved with it and more and more in love with it and um, yeah I just started training and then from there I had an inter club which is a no win no lose fight in um, England and that was it I was hooked yeah. um, I loved it I loved getting hit in the face. <laughs> <laughs> who who doesn't? Um, and when exactly. you when you first started, did you foresee like this illustrious future for yourself? Like because you know you are a WBC diamond belt holder. Was that something you even envisioned from the get go? Oh Jesus, no. Um, if if you spoke to John Jarvis about, I was horrendous when I first started. Um, <laughs> And I'd never really had a competitive streak. I didn't know it was in me. And yeah, I, I, I did do everything, I, you know, 100%, but I never knew I was competitive and I never knew I could be any good at it. It was just the fact that I am so driven. Um, I learned a lot of things about myself, training and fighting. And I had no, no idea that I was going to get anywhere, not even after the first 10 fights, probably. I just knew that every now and again I was doing something a bit better than I did it last time and that's what brought me to go on to the next one is I could get better and I would get better and I was constantly challenging myself um, and every time I did I went I either went up or down a run but I knew if I went down a run that I needed to try twice as hard to get back up there again you know I'm, I wasn't going to be defeated and obviously that mindset got me to where I got in the end. And you said you learned a lot about yourself in this process. What do you think you learned 
Or what was like one of the key things you learned from doing it all? Um, I didn't know I was so dedicated um, and that I was able to constantly challenge myself and put myself and my body through the things that I did. And through sheer determination, I did so many things and empowered myself to get to where I did. I, you know, I still blame myself for thinking about it now, thinking I don't think I could do what I did then now. Mentally, physically, I was determined, I was driven, and nothing was going to stop me. And obviously, the pinnacle of your career was the WBC Diamond Belt, uh, which you fought for in Hong Kong 2018. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that fight was like? Oh, literally from the build-up, from the day that I found out to the build-up to everything, it was just astonishing. It was overwhelming. It was, it was just incredible. Like every minute of it now makes me smile. Back then, it probably didn't because I was so stressed and kind of weighed down by the pressure of it. But I knew that if I let it weigh me down, I wasn't going to be able to win. So. It was just a matter of getting focused um, and doing what I needed to do. This was my chance to be somebody, and I wasn't going to let that go through my fingers. And the chance of going to Hong Kong, thanks to Daniel Suarez and a lot of the other people, uh, General COVID and, and Kevin Lon and Patrick, it, they all enabled me to go there, and they made the experience unforgettable. We had fun, we had laughs. We, you know, it was respectful, it was intense, it was just my whole life flashed before me in that, that one, the well, one, two days, you know, mm -hmm. it was, it was a whirlwind, but it was an amazing whirlwind and the best time of my life. And um, you have a couple other WBC belts, uh, international one, and then two uh, world belts included, and then plus a diamond belt. What were what was the international belts like? What was the two world belts like? Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, the international belt was in England, um, up north. Um, that was my first chance, and I think the first green belt for Lumpkin Crawley. So the pressure was the greatest, and it was quite early on in my career from what my career went to in the end. Um, so. Yeah, that was a big, big step for me. And I remember every step of it, walking out, the music, everything, the fact that I was facing Bad Company, which is a massive gym up north. Um, but the fight was wicked. Uh, Kate Staples, she was brilliant. We got on great. We had a great fight. Um, I still look like it now. Other trainers tell me they get their students to watch it. It was a very clinch-based fight, but it was a good fight. Um, we were both worthy components of the, of the fight. I, I won, and I'm very proud of that, and I still look back at that fight, and I'm proud of it now, and proud to, that that was the first green belt that I managed to wear around my waist. Um, the first world title was on a home show, so I had a good, you know, few hundred people shouting my name, and I put on my usual show when I walked out with a few fire breathers and <laughs> drummers and stuff, and... Yeah, it was amazing, and when I held that belt up, to be honest, I don't remember that fight. 
I all I remember is having that belt, holding it up, and hearing everybody, and just the overwhelming, tearful elation that came with it, and the fact you can never thank people enough for what they did to get your dream to come true. Mm-hmm. You fought in multiple weight classes. What was that like? And what was it like moving up in weight? Did you feel like you had to change your style a lot as you got heavier? No, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. Not. To be honest, it's, it's, it's a minimal weight. And you fight the weight you fight. You've got to fight your the things you're good at, you know, and you can change your styles occasionally when you know what you're getting in front of, but you fight the way you fight, you just have to have different branches on that mm-hmm. main of, of, of what you're good at, there's no trying to beat someone else or, or fight a different way than your style, because that's you, it's your handwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, and what were those different belt fights like, do you remember them, the you said the three different, um, you had the one international and then the two worlds and then the WBC diamond belt in terms of WBC belts, correct? Yes. So four all together. The first one uh, was in this country, in England. Um, that was um, up north. Um, obviously, that was my first WBC, so... Again, the pressure was great, and my chance to be someone, although I'd won other titles. And I think it was the first uh, WBC in the gym, so again, that was my chance to prove to all my supporters, loved ones, and people who were training me that, you know, all the time and effort they'd put into me was worth it. And it, do you know what? It was a great fight. It was an awesome fight. And I still get people telling me now that they get some of their students to watch it. It was a very clinch-based fight. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was really good, and I'm still proud of that fight. And I still remember how nervous I was walking out. I remember the music. I remember that it was bad against Bad Company, which is another biggest one of the gyms in the country. And I can just yeah remember every bit of it. Some fights you don't remember at all, but I remember that fight, and it was yeah a good fight. I'm super proud of it. Yeah, what well, was the first world title was amazing. Mm-hmm. I loved it, and. The main thing I remember about that is the feeling afterwards when I held that belt in my hands and I held up. Again, that was on an actual home show, so that was the first WBC I fought for at home. And I'd lost a couple of world titles before that, and I was it just overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Just I had a, I have always had a lot of support from friends and people coming. You know, there was over a thousand people at that show, I think, and hearing them all shout for you is second to none. It's just unbelievable. How do you feel some of that that experience has impacted you now in your sort of post-fight career? Um, it makes you realise what people... Looking back, obviously, it's been a while now, so yeah. it, you realise what you gave up to do it. You mm-hmm. realise what you put your body through, what you put yourself through, what you put your friends through to get to where you need to be, and also what people gave back to you. And it makes you want to be able to give some of that back to other people. Mm-hmm. What do you think you are able to give back to other people that is maybe different from other people? Um, I think as a female, that helps. Um, getting into the career very late. I didn't start training until I was 27. Mm-hmm. And so that's another 
thing that I find see is a really good thing when they come into the gym and ask me if I can start at 25, you know. Yeah, of course you can. Um, I also, when I retired, I was desperate not to come down or whatever because it had been my life for so long that I went to India and became a yoga teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I feel like I can give back because I try to teach yoga to mainly athletes and I honestly believe that I try to help them with their mindset because fighting, you can train, you can be ready, um, but 90% getting in that ring is how your head is. Mm-hmm. You could have lost or won that fight before you even enter the ring, depending on your mindset. And if I can help people realize how strong that that entity of your body is, then I can help them win fights. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> on the other side of things by helping them control the one thing that's going to make, make or break them. What do you think, or how do you see mindset playing a part in a lot of people and a lot of athletes? Like, what is maybe a common sort of fault that a lot of people have with their mindsets? Doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very hard for self-belief. Um, but there's there's ways around that. If you know if you struggle with self-belief, then maybe just believe in the team that's got you to where you are and use that as your self-belief. So you know that your backup is what's made you as good as you are rather than thinking you're that good. Um, to turning off negative things rather than feeding them. You know, yeah, we all get nervous. But you can't feed that emotion because it just gets stronger inside of you. You have to find ways of distracting your mind to think the positive route rather than the negative route you know just tiny words repetitive positive words you know finding your own thing do you need to go and have a chat to yourself in the mirror before you go in the ring do you need to listen to music to switch off do you need to, you know everyone is different mm-hmm. in body and mind so you have to find what's right for you but knowing that you can control that is the start of being able to control it. What do you think in terms of mindset that you specifically did correctly? Um, that's probably where I made a lot of mistakes. That's why I think mm-hmm. I can help people now. Mm-hmm. I went through every emotion on the spectrum, you know, just, and I lost fights through losing my head before going in there. I, you know, I won fights because you know, it's a tiny little thing, like maybe when the ref talking shit at the beginning, your opponent looks away and you're like, or oh, the negative, I won. You know, mm-hmm. on the stage presence when you walk down the, the walkway, you know, you're not, you're not, I'm not Ruth Ashton anymore, I am who I want to be, I am someone else, I stepped out of my body, I'm now, you know, fake personas, like, yeah, there's so many, it's, it's such a minefield of emotions, feelings, everything, and there's so many components that mm-hmm. gets you in there and gets you out the other side. What do you feel got you started really with fighting? Um, I know you said you'd been taking ringside photography, but was there like a certain moment that made you feel like, I need to get in there? Um, I started training just for fitness aspects of it, and, you know, it's just nice to find something that you don't feel like it's hard work to be fit. And then I just fell in love with it. I just fell in love with it and it became a bit of an obsession. And 
you don't think it's an obsession at the time, but it does. And then I had my first intercarb, which in this country is like a no win, no lose fight against someone else that you can't lose. I've never felt the elation or the buzz after that, but I just wanted to get straight back in. Mm-hmm. So I kind of feel like I fell into it by mistake, and then I just wanted more. I just loved it. I just, every bit of me was thrilled with the training, the, the even the regimentedness of it, you know, everything. I loved everything about it. Um. And since you've been in the sport for over a decade, um, and specifically at the same gym, how do you feel the sport has changed, and maybe even, like, how has Crawley's changed over the years? Um, well, you've got champions now training the new fighters, so mm-hmm. the level of training is just ten times better than it ever was ten years ago. You know, and somebody getting in the ring... C-class, which is the beginning fighters over here, a C-class fighter is, is fighting people that we fought 15 fights in, you know, the, the level of training and fighting now is tenfold to what it used to be mm-hmm. um, you know, we've got the best trainers in the world at our gym and I think it's still, the old school rules still need to come into play in the fact of you need to listen to people. You know, it's like going to school. They know because they've got experience. And it's hard to listen to them when you think you know better or you think you've, you're different or whatever. But the key is listening to that small group around you and not having too many, like, cooks in the kitchen, you know? Too many viewpoints. Having the two or three people that you trust, that you depend on, that you know are going to look after you and get you out of there if necessary. You trust on them. You have to listen to those people, keep them close to you, and let them be part of your journey with you. But the level now oh, is, is unreal compared with what it used to be in that respect. Things have moved forward, moved on, but only got better. And in your career, who were the two or three people that you felt close to and helped you uh, in your career? Different bits for different levels. Obviously, my gym. I've only ever trained at um, Crawley Lumpkin, so they are my family. That I was with them seven days a week, you know. They blood, sweat and tears, literally. You know, from sweatsuits to crying to elation to everything. I've been through every single emotion with them, probably more than my family. Like John, Paolo, Luke, Chris, Alan, George, who's now like the best of the best. Um, they're fighting, they were by my side every step of the way and got me to and through Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But then I've had people from, like DD from Combat Nutrition, who got me through copious amounts of weight cuts, which my body was fighting, seeing specialists, doing everything. From Daniel Suarez, from the WBC, who believed in me from day one, you know, and helped me, pushed me, supported me there's so many people it's even hard to think of them all but technically wise it was it was slumping and calling that got me through mm-hmm. obviously you need other people because it's not as simple as it's just a training yeah Over, so um, 
I guess looking a little larger than just Crawley, what is the UK scene like and what? how has it changed over the years? Um, there's more gyms, I think, because obviously there was the big gyms and a lot of them were opened by people used to train together. So a lot of people from uh, John Jarvis's era, they were all owned gyms all over the country from Scorpions to Bad Company to Kennels. They all kind of used to train together and they opened their own gyms and then that's kind of branched now. So their best fighters have now either opened gyms under them or opened other gyms. So there's a lot more gyms around, but there's also a lot of, quite a few gyms that aren't necessarily to the same level. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot more places to train now, so if you are travelling the country, there's places you can go. You can always be training if you're getting fight ready. Um, the fight seems big. Um, it's even hard to kind of, we, when we were planning our shows, to try and make sure there's no shows on the same weekend. Mm-hmm. So you need to fill it with fighters. So yeah, it's it's big, and the fighters are just another level. Um, I do think it's a shame we don't travel more. Um, I think it's obviously it's very expensive to put on shows, so people have to make money, and you know, to sanction belts and all that sort of thing, it, it's hard work. So these fighters need to start selling tickets so they're worthy of putting on these shows, and then hopefully they'll get to travel. Yeah. Did you have to do a lot of ticket sales in your career? Yeah, it was a big thing. Mm-hmm. It was a big thing, especially early doors, to get recognised. People aren't going to pay for you to fly to even Manchester or Scotland if you don't sell some tickets because it's at the end of the day they have to put these shows on. Mm-hmm. You know, even if they don't make money, they have to break even. So they're not going to bring you from another country if you can't fill the seats. Yeah, what were you good at selling tickets? Uh, were you good at selling yourself in terms of a personality and a, a, as a fighter? I was good at selling tickets. Um, I always had a bit of banter from working in pubs and that I could sell tickets. But, mm-hmm. um, and I think on shows, I made a point of, I think like I said before, I was, it was a show for me. So walking out, I had to switch off from the real me and think. These people don't actually know the real me, so if I can walk up that walkway, being a bit of fun and having a smile on my face, even if they don't know me, they might like my personality, meaning they might cheer for me anyway. Mm-hmm. If you don't know either fighter, you have to pick one to cheer for, yeah. so you'll cheer for the fun one, right? Yeah. So I think I kind of made, I was well known for my big walkouts with drummers and fire and all this sort of thing, but I realised that was my thing, and it, it got people... You know, it's all about the show, right? So yeah. people want to come and watch a show. So put on a show and then you get the crowd behind you. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe your career overall? Wow, that's a question. <laughs> um, overwhelming, life-changing. Um, like I started as a photographer and now I can look back because I've had... Dave Fortescue uh, photographed a lot of my shows. Now all my memories are obviously in images and it's hard to believe sometimes that that was actually me and what I've done and where I've come. And It's overwhelming and I'm glad I gave up my life for it, but then I was also very lucky to get the opportunities that I did. 
you know, I, I, I managed to finish on a pinnacle. I managed to make a legend for myself. And I'm so lucky to have done that. And people give up their lives for this and don't necessarily got those opportunities. Do you think that, um, like most people, you sort of mentioned this, most people don't end on a pinnacle. Were you planning on stopping after you uh, got the WBC diamond belt? Um, I think a lot of people were talking about me retiring anyway because obviously I was coming up to 40. And um, How do you stop or when do you decide when it's your passion in your life? How do you know when the right time is? But I also learned from watching a lot of other people, you need to stop or you're good. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, otherwise... I don't want to be remembered for being average. No. You know, so I needed to pick I was going to stop. I was still good. Was... Um, and it could have been a home show, but at the same time, someone gave me the opportunity to fight for a diamond belt, the only woman in the world to fight for one. There was nowhere to go from that. Yeah. You know, that, uh, that was my people, and it was like someone gave it to me on a plate and said, you know, it's not... if I did another fight, Everyone would want to fight me, don't get me wrong. I could get fights all over the world being a diamond belt holder, but where was my career going to go from there? Mm -hmm. It couldn't go up any higher. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, this is this is the right time. Yeah. When, when you decided to retire, um, obviously it made a lot of sense in terms of reaching this pinnacle, but was it difficult like, to not want to go back into the ring and not, to like continue training and sort of always be fighting because you were so you were quite active you know five to ten fights per year for 12 years that you know that's a huge portion of your life and then you hit this pinnacle and then you you need to make changes or you stop uh what was that like um i think i was kind of getting my head around it for quite a long time you know a year or so, I was like, you know, I need to make some decisions. I'm not getting any younger. This is really hard. The weight cuts are getting harder. Saying that Hong Kong was probably the easiest, but <laughs> leading up to that, the, the weight cuts are getting harder. Um, and I was kind of prepping myself for it. I suppose like you prep yourself to get a year older. I was prepping myself that this was going to have to come to an end at some point. Um, so it was in my head before I even knew about the diamond belt. I just didn't know when to do it, mm -hmm. and I didn't want to do it, don't get me wrong. But then, like I said, I thought, okay, I can't just stop. I need to do something. So then I went to India for five weeks and studied to be a yoga teacher. So I felt like I did my next step. That was what I needed to do and move on and progress and help other people. So I had that new focus. But don't get me wrong, I still love training. I would still train every day of the week, mm -hmm. as long as you as as didn't mean weight cut. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely know about training. not wanting to do weight cuts. I definitely know about that. Yeah, <laughs> that is not something I miss, or that I, you know, you know, uh, I, I'm happy with the fighting. I still look back and smile about it, and I still look back and think, how did I do that? And I see people now training in the gym, cutting weight, seeing how awful they feel and thinking, how did I do that? Mm -hmm. 
you know, the training I love, but I don't miss the... I miss parts of it. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of it I don't miss. And I, I think my dues, you know, I gave up my life, literally gave up my life to, to, to do that and achieve what I did. And I was lucky to get the opportunities. But now I feel like a new chapter's turned and I can go on to the next bit of my life. So, um, and what is that next bit of your life? Um, I had to do quite a bit more with the WBC. Uh, Daniel Suarez made me um, the chairwoman for Europe, so I can help him with that. Um, I'm still uh, training at, I'm sorry, I'm still teaching at the gym um, five days a week, full time. So again, I'm helping with the, the, the kids, you know, I'm helping doing PTs, adults who do ladies only classes. Um, and I teach yoga there, so that's where I'm helping with the mindset and stuff mm-hmm. and even talking to fighters who fight at our shows. Just, I know I have every word in my vocabulary to help them pre-fight before they walk out to get their heads right. Mm-hmm. And you said uh, you were, uh, you're working now with the WBC a bit. What are you... What are some of the details of your job and what are you specifically doing? Um, I haven't done a lot yet. I'd like to get a lot more involved, but I can have input and I get asked about any um, British or European fighters that want to fight for titles, uh, maybe ask their fight record or what I think of them or do a bit of um, research into where they're at and whether they're ready. Because obviously the WBC have to say whether two people can fight for a belt. Um, I'm also, if we have any WBCs on our shows, I can officiate the weigh-ins. Mm-hmm. So as a WBC representative, I can I can officiate and sign off uh, weigh-ins of WBC fights. Yeah, at uh, the moment that's that's it. But mm-hmm. I do hope to get a lot more involved. I met most of the the big guns um, in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. um, and they were just amazing Kevin and Patrick and just um, just all of them were just the funnest um, brilliant lovely people literally they were just they made me laugh you know we had some fun but they were very respectful and very knowledgeable and just yeah every bit of Hong Kong makes me smile um, and what are some of your immediate goals for the future? I know you said you teach the women's class and also the kids' class and the WBC. Do you have uh, goals besides that or goals within those different projects? I would like to, now I've been out of it a little while, get a bit more involved with some kind of other angle of uh, my time, but I kind of need to see what's out there or maybe get some suggestions off. I've obviously got a lot of contacts in, in the world, so now that I've had my break from the fighting and I'm still very, very passionate about it, I would like to get into it from a different angle, but finding that angle, I'm still very driven and very passionate, so whatever I do, I give it 150%. Well, uh, that is definitely clear. Um, I really appreciate you taking your time out. Um, was there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't talk about? Um, I just think kind of what we did touch on about future people is, unfortunately, England's not somewhere you can 
be a full-time fighter. You know, you still have to have a job. So I think it's really important to know, to listen to the right people, you know, and to give it everything, but also have a life, you know, train and rest is just as important. You know, I think in this country we get very obsessed with training and very obsessed with always finding better. Mm-hmm. Someone who believes in you is the best you can get. You know, you don't need 10 people telling you what to do. You need that one person who's going to stand by your side and support you, that knows what they're talking about. You know, two people driven with respect and honour, which is not necessarily, you don't get much of that now either. Mm. You know, love what you do, but respect the people that help you get where you get. Awesome. Well, uh, those are definitely good words to close with. I, I appreciate you taking your time out, Ruth. I appreciate um, you wanting to talk to me. It's so funny after all this time. Um, you know, I've been able to say thank you to a lot of people that have meant a lot to me. And um, hopefully one day I can give back even more. Awesome. So that concludes our interview with Ruth Ashton. I thought I learned a lot from it. Just, you know, her ability to fight a lot and also her humbleness. Um, It really goes to show how many people are involved in the creation of a champion. You know, it's not just one single person. It's a team. Um, So thank you so much for listening. Um, This has been I'm Fighting in Thailand best news and analysis covering the economics and infrastructure of Muay Thai. I'm Matt Lucas, journalist, commentator, and ex-Muay Thai fighter. Make stronger fighters, make stronger people.